people are that are at a, a level of consciousness, spiritual consciousness and awareness, we take knowledge from them. By that knowledge, in due course of time, we can experience ourselves. Generally, especially in, in today's modernistic, new age, hodgepodge, you have many people that say, I have experience. A sincere seeker has to be very discriminating in trying to find out what is factual, spiritual knowledge and who is actually having a real experience and who is simply having a hallucination. There's some discrimination required. And in order to develop that discrimination, and that's exactly what we're going to cover tonight, because Arjuna is going to pose that question directly to Krishna, I need to know how to qualify that person who has seen the self, the sthita the, the person who's, who knows the atma, the true self. How, what are his characteristics? So we'll talk a little about that. How important are the credentials of that person? How important are the credentials of the person that, that's holding the knife that you're going to go under on the operating table? Ah, okay. As important as <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. If you're going to give over yourself to try to find out what is true self-realization, uh-huh. let's make sure we don't go to a charlatan. Let's, no go, let's not go to a quack when we have a heart valve replacement. Right. But does the guru actually have uh, credentials? I, I don't know. Have you ever heard anything? Have you ever heard? Vacha vegam and a vegam. We've spoken many times of the credentials of a bona fide guru. We'll speak again and again about it. There's no hearing enough about the importance of being able to discriminate and know the proper credential. How does he act? How does he sit? How does he work? What's he think? There's no title involved, I suppose. Dr. Guru or Professor Guru. Well, there's so many titles there, but... We're not interested in the title as much as, as the true qualification. Of course, uh, there's all kinds of titles. Sometimes the people with the titles really have no qualification. Sometimes the person with no title at all is the most qualified to give us spiritual knowledge. You'll note in the beginning of Srimad Bhagavatam, the sages are sitting around and Maharaj Parikshit has he's been cursed. He's only got seven days to live. So he doesn't want to have just anybody give him spiritual knowledge because he wants to really take advantage of his situation. He knows when he's going to die. How would your life change if you knew in exactly seven days, 12 hours and 46 minutes, that was it? How would you want to utilize that last bit of time? That's Maharaj Parikshit's position at the beginning of Srimad Bhagavatam. He's surrounded by sages and munis and yogis, great thinkers, great spiritualists, great practitioners who all know something of the truth. They all have an opinion. And just like we were reading, there comes a time when the arguments are set aside. That the subject matter becomes so serious that we set argument 
argumentative analysis aside and we go for that person who, who is the most qualified, who can just speak knowledge. There's no argument. It's amazing. The person that came by at exactly that time when Maharaj Pariksit said, please tell me what's best for me at the time of death. You tell me to look at him and to view him. This is a, a young boy. And these are old sages and saints. You can imagine the, the thing. Along what comes a young boy who's radiant. And they can immediately see by the characteristics of his body. Here is a, here is a very enlightened transcendentalist. But he's naked. Common men and the little boys are chasing him, throwing dirt on him, ridiculing him. He's a crazy man. He's just walking around naked. He's unattached. He's just. But the sages, they could see the characteristic, actually, even in his physical demeanor. And in that, they were able to say, we should let this person speak. We'll see how far we get this evening. We're going to chant uh, verse 59 together. Visaya vinibartante niraharashyadehina visavarjam rasopyasya paramdrishtva nivartate. The embodied soul may be restricted from sense enjoyment, though the taste for sense objects remains. But ceasing such engagements by experiencing a higher taste, he is fixed in consciousness. Omajana trimanandasya, janajana salakaya, chakshuran militanyena tasmai shri gurave namaha. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual master has opened my eyes. With the torchlight of knowledge, I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. And last week we left off around the 46th verse. Krishna is instructing Arjuna as to the nature of the primary religious knowledge contained in Scripture, and specifically the Vedic scriptures, the oldest scriptures which are, are coming down purely for the benefit of humanity. And he's made it clear that although the majority of scriptures, although the majority of scriptural injunctions of scriptural directives given in the Vedas are, are for men of the world because this is the material world and the majority of people here want to enjoy what's here. So generally, the Vedic knowledge deals with what's referred to as karma kanda, performing good acts to get a good result. And certain things that we do through our activities, that we do through the performance of sacrifice, through giving in charity, through taking on some regulation within our lifestyle according to our position in the modes of material nature in this environment. The majority of the Vedic knowledge deals with how to make it better, more agreeable, more pleasing, and how to perform activity in this environment so that I get what I want. I want a good education. I, merit, I, 
I perform sacrifice to the goddess of learning. I want good sons. Their sacrificial performances I can do to get good sons. I want elevation to the heavenly planets. I can perform various sacrifices to get elevation to the heavenly planets. But Krishna makes it pretty clear that those kind of business arrangements with the environment are truly not those people that engage in them and the, and the engagements themselves, which are for advancement in material affairs, really are not taken up by people who have fine intelligence. Therefore, he tells Arjuna, let me tell you what people of fine intelligence do. They are not attracted by the flowery words of the Vedas because those flowery arrangements are truly poisonous to the soul, to the spirit self, to the Atma, to your real existence. Why? Because they continue to keep you wrapped up in the process of ongoing enjoyment and suffering. Karma, samsara, birth and death and birth and death, birth as a woman, birth as a man, birth on a low planet, birth on a high planet, birth here, birth there, birth everywhere. There's living entities everywhere. It's not that when you come to the human form of life, that's a guaranteed, you've, you've reached this level and there's no chance that you're going to go down. You're only going to go up. No, you can get here and go down. Karma continually going on. And the Vedas mainly deal with getting good karma, karma conduct. Krishna gives a very important instruction to Arjuna. In the minds of those who are too attached to sense enjoyment and material opulence and who are bewildered by such things, the resolute determination for devotional service to the Supreme Lord does not take place. Don't be like one of those people. <laughs> Don't be so wrapped up in material opulence. Don't be so wrapped up in enjoying this world that you forget what's truly in your best interest spiritually. Vedas mainly deal with the subject of the three modes of material nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance. O Arjuna, become transcendental to these modes. Be free from all dualities and from all anxieties for gain and safety and be established in the self. All purposes served by the small well can at once be served by a great reservoir of water. Similarly, all the purposes of the Vedas can be served by one who knows the purpose behind them. What does that mean? All purposes of the Vedas. The main purposes of the Vedas are basically to what? To not have to suffer in this environment and to make the best use of it. To get the most benefit. And the amazing thing is if you know the purpose behind all the regulation of the Veda, the hidden meaning that which has been drawn out of the Vedas by the great saints and sages as the essence. Specifically in this age, that essence has been drawn out by Srila Vyasadeva, 
under the toolage of his guru. And what did he draw out? He drew out the essence. And what's it called? Srimad Bhagavatam. And what's the Srimad Bhagavatam exclusively deal with? Pure, unalloyed devotion to the Supreme Lord. Ahaitaki apratiyata. Unmotivated, uninterrupted God consciousness. That's the essence. Why is it the essence? Because that enjoyment that the soul can have in their true spirituality, loving relationship with God, that enjoyment is on such a high plane that it takes in everything that mankind thinks is pleasurable. That's what this verse speaks to. What's it say? Verse 46. All purposes served by the small well. Small well. There's many small wells. You can go to so many small wells and draw out some water. Water for drinking, water for washing the clothes, water for cooking. So many wells are there. But if you have a great body of water, the water there can be used for all purposes. Similarly, all the purposes of the Vedas can be served by one who knows the purpose behind them. Why do we go to the Vedas? We go to the Vedas to what? To secure our enjoyment in this material world. Basically, we try to secure it in this material world because we do not have knowledge beyond this plane of existence. This is all we know of. So therefore, where do we, we want, we're pleasure-seeking entities. Our consciousness is always seeking out pleasure. But our pleasure is limited by our knowledge. You can't seek out pleasure on a plane you have no knowledge of. But if we can receive the essence of Vedic knowledge, if we can draw out the cream of the true spiritual intent of the Vedas, then that's the highest intelligence. And that's what Bhagavatam is there for. Yes? Do the Vedas, uh, they, they tell you which demigod to worship for which thing? Mm-hmm. There's no knowledge that humanity has that hasn't, that does not have its source in the Vedic knowledge. It's not that even the empirical knowledge, that knowledge which supposedly is drawn from the environment by the senses, empiric knowledge, you understand that? That's, that means that we perform an experiment and we come to a conclusion and we, in order to perform that experience we've used our limited intelligence and the limited facilities that are available to us, our seeing, our... You know, our senses, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. The ascending process is the same thing? Ascending, yes, correct. Vedic knowledge is descending. But you'll find everything in the Vedic knowledge, whereas your empiric knowledge, it may or it may not give you full knowledge. Because the senses are imperfect. The mind's imperfect. Bhagavatam only, not in the Vedas, that you find out that the demigods are all worshipping 
the essence of the knowledge in the Vedas that relates to the soul is in the various Upanishads, that portion of the Vedas. But the Upanishads, that Shruti, is very difficult for the common man to ascertain what's being said. It's in code. It needs to be decodified so that we can understand it. So it was there. It's not that Vyasadeva did not give that knowledge coming from the Vedas, but even in giving that knowledge, because the predominance of knowledge dealt with karmakanda, he was not satisfied. So that does that answer your question? That's why that's why we need the assistance to, to bring out the essence. We also, Dave, he, he, he provided all that information, but even in providing all that information, it was there, he wasn't content. And he went to his guru and he says, why am I discontent? I've given humanity the Vedas and with the Vedas, they should be able to completely enjoy life, but I just don't feel content in what I've given them. I feel I've left something out. And Narada Muni said yes. Now you take the essence, the cream, which is pure spiritual existence, and you teach them how to bring themselves to that kind of living, that standard, which is bhakti. Give them the essence of bhakti. Then you'll be satisfied in your endeavor. So therefore, Vyasadeva wrote his mature commentary on the Vedas, Srimad Bhagavatam. You have a right to perform your prescribed duty, but you are not entitled to the fruits of action. Never consider yourself the cause of the results of your activities, and never be attached to not doing your duty. So Krishna is, again, coming back to giving Arjuna instruction, which we call Niskarma Karma Yoga. Niskama Karma Yoga. What's that mean? Do your work in life. Perform your activities, your karma in life, not with a lust to enjoy the fruit, but just as a sense of duty. And that working in that sense of duty will bring you to the platform of knowledge. And that's what these few verses are going to... You'll see how Krishna walks Arjuna to that platform. Perform your duty equal pose, O Arjuna, abandoning all attachment to success or failure. Such equanimity is called yoga. O Dananjana, keep all abominable activities far distanced by devotional service, and in that consciousness surrender unto the Lord. Those who want to enjoy the fruits of their work are misers. Now, does that mean that we won't have fruits in life? If we're not working towards the fruits... If we're not being lusty for the fruit of the tree of life, does that mean no fruit will come? Everyone gets 
fruits in the plain. Whether they work hard or not, they come. It's not that we need to live a miserly life to enjoy the fruits of our activities. And if we have time, we'll go into the fruits of the activities as far as a breakdown of the various development of karma. But the fruits of life are coming. We don't need to be miserly. We've already set the course in action. If we are now redirecting our course by using intelligence coming down from higher consciousness, if we're redirecting our life towards, towards that fruit of spiritual advancement, we need not worry. It's not that we have to be concerned with receiving benefit from this plane. You will be fed, you will be clothed, you will still have the advantage of the, of the atmosphere here. We don't have to be miserly. A man engaged in devotional service rids himself of both good and bad reactions, even in this life. Therefore, strive for yoga, which is the art of all work. As long as we're on this plane, there's going to be good and bad. The fruits of our good activities and our bad activities, as long as we have a material body that is in any way involved in the modes of material nature, there's still that residue karma. It's called parabdha karma. It's a technical Sanskrit term. It's automatically coming. But Krishna is telling Arjuna here, if you engage in the pursuit of devotional service, and by devotional service we mean if you engage in the pursuit of redirecting your energy towards your true spiritual self, if you do that, automatically you will rid yourself of both the good and the bad reaction. You'll be unplugging the fan of your karma. That doesn't mean the fan blades might still be going around and all of a sudden certain things may come that are good and certain things may come that are bad. That's there. But at least you've unplugged the fan. Eventually, the wind and turmoil of material existence will dissipate and your life will be completely overtaken by purely spiritual involvement. By thus engaging in devotional service to the Lord, great sages or devotees free themselves from the results of work in the material world. In this way, they become free from the cycle of birth and death and attain the state beyond all miseries. Going back to Godhead. When your intelligence is passed out of the dense forest of delusion, you shall become indifferent to all that has been heard and all that is to be heard. When your mind is no longer disturbed by the flowery language of the Vedas and when it remains fixed in the trance of self-realization, then you will have attained the divine consciousness. Which brings us to tonight's class. Krishna's covered some ground here, some preliminary ground. He brought... he. In the beginning of the chapter, he brought out some very elemental things about the nature of our self, our soul, and the distinction between that which is our essence and that which we 
perceive as our essence, which is this body, which really is not us at all. It's the fruits of our involvement in an exploitive mentality on this plane. So many instructions are there from the, what, the 12th verse to the 30th verse, all very much centered. For the soul there's never birth nor death, having once been, never ceases to be, he's not withered by the wind. So many things are there. You can read those verses again and again to keep, keep centered. But then he goes on and he starts to explain to Arjuna, you're, in order for you to come to that level of understanding, you need to engage in this life at this time according to your position. But do it without the desire to exploit. Go ahead and do your service. Be a warrior. But don't be a warrior for your self-benefit. Be a warrior for God. Be Because he's talking to God. Do that for me. That's your nature. Or you're a teacher, or you're a banker, or you're a wife, or whatever we are. Whatever we are, we do that, but we do that in, in spiritual consciousness. We do that without an exploitive mentality. If we do that gradually, we'll come to knowledge. Naturally, it doesn't require an extraneous effort on our part. I want to quote you a verse in that regard from the Bhagavatam. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. Vasudeva Bhagavati, Bhakti Yoga Prayojita, Janayat Yasya, Varagyam, Janamcha Yad, Ahaitukam. Vasudeva Bhagavati, Bhakti Yoga Prayojita, Janayat Yashyavar Vairagyam, Janamcha Yad, Ahaitukam. Two important words in this verse. Well, the most important word is Bhakti Yoga, doing that yoga which brings us to the platform of loving the Supreme. Vairagyam, detachment, yanam, knowledge. Cha, Ties them together. If you perform devotional service, causeless knowledge and detachment come. And it's interesting. Bhaktivedanta Swami, in the word for word, in the word for word, he translates Asya as very soon. But, in the translation of the verse, he says, one who engages in the process of devotional service, for one who does this, immediately they come to the platform of causeless knowledge and detachment. It's that quick. Of course, immediately in the whole scheme of time may be another thing. But in the process of devotional practice, we immediately come to the platform of detachment and we immediately come to the platform of causeless knowledge. And we've touched upon this before. And what I kind of wanted to touch on this evening was there's a concept in religious life that, that we need to understand in relationship to 
renunciation. There is a difference between renunciation and detachment. In renunciation, there's some force on our part to not engage in, in activities that are going to be detrimental to us. Although we're conditioned, our mind still wants to exploit and enjoy. So therefore, there's, there's some grinding there, some force. Well, I know I have to refrain myself from performing activities that are detrimental. Devotional practice, though, gives us detachment. Detachment means, I really, uh, the taste is gone. The verse we chanted tonight, what's that verse say? Visaya venivartante, niraha rashyadehina, visaya. Verse 59. We can apply some force. We can be restricted by force. We may agree to be restricted by the direction of a higher spiritual source. The directives of the, of the scripture. The desire to please and satisfy the guru. He may give some forceful instruction. Specifically in this age, the forceful instructions are, let's not destroy, let's do away with those things that would destroy the foundation of character required to advance spiritually. Truthfulness, austerity, cleanliness, and mercy. Those four things are the legs upon which they're the foundation, the cornerstones of spiritual practice. Truthfulness, austerity, cleanliness, and mercy. On this plane of exploitation, there are direct corollaries in sinful involvement in exploitation which destroy these pillars. Meat-eating, illicit sex, gambling, and intoxication. The guru says, you must restrain. Some forces there. My gosh, I love to get drunk. I love a glass of wine in the evening. I love women. I love, I love to go gamble. I still have a taste for some meat. The guru may say, all bets are off if you really want to make spiritual life advancement and you're not willing to give up, you're not willing to take on at least a little bit of determined practice so that we can rebuild a solid foundation for spiritual advancement, truthfulness, austerity, cleanliness, and mercy, understand the significance of that. So some force is there. That term force is twaga in Sanskrit. Renunciation. I renounce this. Okay, I'll, I'll renounce it. But it's hard for me. Like you said earlier, <laughs> our mind for what? Millions of years. We have tracks. <laughs> We're going down. Yes, I want to enjoy this. I want to enjoy this. I exploit like this. The proper thing, the way to really get beyond that difficulty is what? 
It's not the renunciation. The renunciation will not get the job done. Eventually, the senses will drag you back down into those activities again. No amount of renunciation is going to give you spiritual advancement. But if you become detached by what? What's Krishna say in that 59th verse? What's the characteristic of somebody who's truly making spiritual advancement? He's getting a higher taste. He's tasting something better than those fruits in material life where he thinks there's pleasure for the self. Because he's tasting what is truly pleasurable to, to the self. And that detachment comes naturally. The verse I quoted from the Bhagavat. By engaging in the processes of devotional service, causeless knowledge and detachment automatically come. When? Immediately. What does that immediately mean? Immediately, when these senses are trying to drag us down into some sinful life, we can immediately take shelter of the process of devotional service. What are the processes of devotional service? Shravanam Kirtanam Vishnu Smaram Parasevanam Archanam Vandanam Dasyam Sakyam Atmanivedanam Hearing, chanting, remembering. For us, now, in the beginning, where's the immediate shelter for us? Shravanam Kirtanam. Hearing and chanting. Together. We do them. Together. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hari Rama, Hari Rama, 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 Hari Hari. We're hearing, we're chanting. We're hearing, we're chanting. We're remembering Krishna. Remembering is automatically coming. That is the foundation of devotional practice that defeats the grind, the difficulty of renunciation. You have to give the censors a higher engagement, something that's more pleasing. In the beginning, the chanting may not be so pleasing, but it's like medicine. In the beginning, medicine may not be sweet. It may never be sweet, but eventually it will have an effect and you don't have to take it anymore. Well, our chanting is a little bit different. Our chanting is not only our practice, it is our goal. Because in the chanting, we will eventually experience the highest spiritual pleasure. I'll give you a quick summary of karma, just to whet your appetite in that realm of knowledge. And we'll go into it later as time allows. Or I can direct you to where in the Bhagavat to learn the particulars. Because we all have karma, we might as well, a little bit of scientific knowledge of it may be a good thing. Karma is broken down into four parts scientifically by the great sages. You can specifically get knowledge, get knowledge of the obliteration of your karma as you advance spiritually from the writing of Vishwanath Chakravarti, Madhurya Kadambani. Just for a recap. Aparabdha. 
It's a stock of our accumulated karmic reaction. Now remember, karma is both good and bad. So it's not when we say karma, we're only talking about bad karma. There's good karma. Sometimes you win the lottery. Sometimes you find the perfect husband and wife. Sometimes you don't. (laughs) Some good karma, some bad karma. Some have it good, some have it bad. All this karma is due to our activities. Remember that. There is nothing in this world that is coming to you that is not of your own design. You may not have wanted, designed it that way, but somehow or other your engagement in this plane of existence has brought it your way. You have no enemy here except here. The fact that your karma has, may come through a different agent and you say, why did you run me off the road? Why did you wreck my car? You should know. You might want to hold your tongue. Somewhere along the way, you did something to deserve what's coming your way. That's karma. Both good and bad. What's coming your way may be good or bad. Aparabdha is that accumulation of karmic activity. It begins to manifest in the first stage of manifestation. The Sanskrit term is kuta. It begins to manifest. The next stage is bija. In bija, the seed starts to truly show itself in our life. We start to develop desire in a certain area. And what's the other word? Uh, Predisposition. We become predisposed in a certain way. So that's bija. And once that seed sprouts and begins to grow it's called parabda you see all of us sitting here you see this that this different body that different body this different characteristic this all this is parabda we are now enjoying the fruits of our karma not real bad in this society right now yet and the fruits of the karma are, are enjoyed through three agencies, both good and bad, ourself, our mind, other living entities, and the natural disturbances are created by higher authority, out of our control. Believe me, I'm sure there are a lot of people in the Midwest that would have wanted to turn the storm off last week. There were people in Australia that didn't want the typhoon to come in at level five and destroy practically everything. I saw the picture online of all the yachts just piled up in a huge pile. Higher authority. That's the amazing interaction of the modes of material nature conducted under the supervision of ultimately the Lord in the heart of every living entity and specifically in the material world through the agency of, of the demigods. So it's a very... There's not a lot given in the Bhakti Shastras about how that happens, but we can imagine that it's a very sophisticated arrangement that puts one living entity who is inflicting pain on another living entity into their life so that his desire to inflict pain and your sinful reaction of, of suffering 
the infliction of pain come together. But that's that's God. <laughs> he can make all those arrangements perfectly through his various energies. To the ultimate benefit of, of both. Let's hope it's beneficial. We can either benefit for our karma or ignore it. If we don't benefit from it, we're destined to re-experience it. But the divine intention is to benefit, yes? Absolutely. We don't put people in prison without the intention of giving them some benefit, of rectifying them, except maybe in our society. God doesn't have those <laughs> that kind of uh, lacking in his management. Yes, ma'am. Vairagya and Tyaga, Krishna is the most renounced, so that's a good quality, but um, I guess is the distinction like as long as we understand that Krishna Prama is the goal? And, I mean, because we. I as mean, long as we understand. As long as we tie our renunciation into serving Krishna, that's perfect renunciation. Because we're doing it ultimately for what? Out of love. If there's any other motivation to our renunciation or to our following of the direction of the guru, if we have any other objective, it can actually be counterproductive to our spiritual advancement. But ultimately, renunciation is on this plane is not the ticket to spiritual advancement. Detachment. Detachment is... True detachment. Like the verse we chanted tonight. Because Krishna says, the seed of desire is still. You have to, you have to eliminate the seed. Otherwise, karma will sprout up again. Yes, ma'am. Um, in his commentary to verse 56, my guru talks about Parabdha and says, and I'm paraphrasing, Bhakti has the power to change. Parabdha Even Parabdha, life, yes. In this lifetime, can you elaborate? Can you give some examples? If you can come in this lifetime to the platform of pure chanting where there is no other motive, then the material body ceases to have any influence whatsoever on you. It's as simple as that. When you put an iron rod in a fire, if we put ourselves continually in the fire of bhakti yoga, of devotional service, continually, that's a big word, continually. Not a super big word. But it's a big word in our spiritual life. If we can do that, then the iron rod takes on the characteristics of fire. If we continually engage ourselves in spiritual activity, cent percent, hundred percent, then there is no karma. That's why when we look at the guru, even in seeing his physical form, it's never looked on as a, as a material body. That's offensive to our spiritual life. You never see the guru as having material body. Any other questions? One other question. Yes, ma'am. The other day, Sir? Amy was asking, uh, with Krishna Conscious, do you have a Satan or a hell? Other than Kalayuga? Kala 
Because they were cleaning her system. Oh, oh, oh that's, right. Yeah. that's right. That's right. But is there a Satan or? Yeah, there are de- demoniac personalities. Is there one specific anti-Krishna? No, there's a lot of them because you couldn't you couldn't have one Krishna's guy. He's unlimited. So therefore, when he fights with the demons, he needs to have a a, a lot of them. So when he came, look at how many demons he killed. He started out with Bhutana. It said it said that every I mean in the Bhagavat we have so many demons that are that are brought out by Sukadev Goswami just to engage in karma and get a body. A seed fructifies and we get a body. So the soul doesn't go to a lower class body. If we do something really bad in this body, we don't get become warm on the stool or Well, it depends on how bad it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to look at it. Of course, there's 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 reference in Bhagavad of uh, sometimes we're fortunate and we're cursed to a lower body, like Nalakuvera and Mani Griva. But no, there there this is a continual cycle of birth and death throughout eight million four hundred thousand species, different bodily species of life. Yes, you go up and down. It's not that when you come to the human form, that's guaranteed you're going to get the human form in your next life. And think about it. Just think about it. How sinful some people are in the human form of life. Do you really want them coming back? Serial rapists, serial killers, people that take sexual advantage of children, people that just go out and slaughter mercilessly. Do you really think that Mansons or Hitlers should be come back as human beings. So really, this is the ultimate recycling program. You know? This is the ultimate recycling program. Yeah, let's just not get... Let's get out of the program. Thank you so very much. Hare Krishna.